Hello, and welcome to this episode of Criminal Mischief, the Art and Science of Crime Fiction. I'm D.P. Lyle, your host. Um, today I want to talk about gunshot wounds, uh, how they're analyzed, what they mean, how they're interpreted, how they can change a, a case, how they can make or break a case. Um, gunshot wounds are you know, involved in real-life crime, of course, all the time. They're also involved in your criminal uh, in, in your fictional crimes. So gunshot wounds are, are very popular ways of doing away with people. Uh, and when investigators come and look at a death from a gunshot wound, uh, they and the medical examiner have to work together. The crime scene analyst, the, the medical examiner, etc., have to work together to determine many things about what happened. In other words, first thing is the type of weapon used. Was it a rifle? Was it a handgun? Was it a shotgun? What was it? Um, what are the circumstances? Uh, when and where and how did this happen? Uh, what were the spatial relationships between the shooter and the victim? Uh, how close were they? What was the angle? Where were they standing? What happened? All of these things come into crime scene reconstruction and are very, very, very important in trying to determine what happened and who's responsible. Now remember, a gunshot wound, uh, one of the things the medical examiner has to determine is the manner of death. And, you know, we've got uh, natural, uh, suicidal, accidental, homicidal, and I don't know. Uh, those are the five manners of death, as it were. The I don't know category is when nothing else really pops out. Uh, a gunshot wound, you know, could be self-inflicted. In this, in this case, it would either be suicidal or accidental. Or it could come from the hand of another. And here it could be accidental or it could be homicidal. Uh, obviously, there's a big difference between an accidental shooting and a, and a homicidal shooting. Um, all of this analysis that's done at the crime scene and at autopsy uh, will help support or refute any suspect or witness statements. What the suspect said happened. You know, he was attacking me. Uh, this was self-defense. Well, was it? Um, so what kinds of things are they going to look at? Let's get, uh, a, when the medical examiner does the autopsy, he's going to try to locate the bullet. Now, most often the bullet does stay in the body, but not always. It passes through. In medicine, we call these through and through gunshot wounds because they enter and they exit. Entry wounds in general tend to be smaller than exit wounds. And we're going to talk about entry wounds a little more in a minute. Exit wounds tend to be larger, more ragged, because the bullet, as it passes through, really rips the tissues and tears them open, and you have a big gaping wound that can carry brain tissue and other tissue right out the back, and, and it will spray downwind on, you know, furniture, lamps, carpet, windows, whatever, whatever's downstream. And all of these things help determine the path of the bullet. The type of bullet used also makes a difference as to what the exit wound will look like. If you're using a very uh, hard bullet, like a full metal jacket or one of these Teflon bullets, uh, one of these cop killer type bullets, they have high velocity and high penetrating power. But the bullet itself remains fairly intact as it passes through the body. That means it itself doesn't get damaged much. And so that means that the Exit wound is going to be smaller, and sometimes they look like entry wounds. And the medical examiner's got to trace the path of the bullet and try to figure out which is which. It's not always straightforward. 
most bullets are softer. They're hollow points or they're lead bullets or they're something that, that allows the bullet to what we call mushroom, means that it just flattens and, and becomes misshapen. Well, this obviously, once it enters the skin and goes through muscles and organs and all of this stuff before it exits, if it's flattened and mushroomed and splayed out, it does a lot more tissue damage. And when it gets to its exit point, it rips a much larger hole through the skin and so therefore you would see the exit wound <clears throat> that is thick and I mean that is that is splayed open and is ragged and ratty and a lot of tissue damage. Now if they find the bullet either you know downstream in the at the crime scene or within the victim it's easy to determine the caliber of the bullet. Uh, if not, You can often do it visually and if not you know you weigh it and you can determine the caliber of the bullet. So now you've you've looked at what kind of gun might have done this. Um, sometimes if there's some striation marks you can tell by the twist and the turns and we won't get into all this here what type of weapon it was, you know, whether it was a Smith & Wesson or not. Uh, different manufacturers use different uh, lands and numbers of lands and grooves on the bullet uh, uh, in the barrel and different twists, right twist, left twist, that kind of stuff. This is all covered in uh, Forensics for Dummies and How Done at Forensics if you want to investigate that further, but that's not what we're talking about here. So what do, uh, what happens when a gun is fired? What actually happens when a gun is fired? Well, you've got a bullet, a cartridge in there, and the cartridge contains uh, the cartridge container. It has the firing pin on the back, the bullets in the front, and inside in that little cylinder is packed all the explosive material, gunpowder. When the hammer hits the firing pin, it sets off a little charge that ignites the powder it explodes inside the cartridge and bang in the inside the shell casing and bang the bullet is now forced out of there forward down the barrel and out into the world well the bullet's not the only thing that comes out when gunpowder explodes it it doesn't burn completely but but mostly and so all of that material, that burn scattered material, is also going to fly out of the of the end of the barrel, uh, that soot, if you will, uh, the debris, the burned and unburned gunpowder is going to come out. Also, hot gases, because when this explodes, it creates heat, and all these hot gases come out of the barrel. So. If if you look at this, the bullet travels a long way. I mean, you know, it can travel a thousand yards. Uh, the burned and unburned powder, maybe a couple of feet. And the hot gases, maybe six or eight inches before they dissipate or, or drop in temperature. So these different distances of the materials that are ejected out of the, of the gun barrel, out of the muzzle, can help determine a very important thing, and that is the distance between the muzzle and the entry wound. Okay, so let's say that the gun is fired from uh, a couple of feet or more. Well, the only thing that's going to reach the victim is the bullet. The soot and dirt and unburned gunpowder and, and the flash flame is not going to reach the person. It's not going to reach the entry site if it's two or three feet away. Just the bullet. So the bullet enters and makes a small hole and then does what it does downstream, you know, either 
uh, it's a hollow point and makes a lot of damage, or it's a, a full metal jacket and goes straight through. It has a big exit wound. And all those things, we're just looking at entry wounds right now. It's going to make a small round wound, okay? But around that's going to be an area of like blue-black marking that's like bruising, and it's called an abrasion collar. And what this is is basically when the bullet is fired, all this soot and material and exploded gunpowder and oils and dirt and grime are going to get on the bullet as it as it explodes out of the shell casing and down the barrel. And when it enters the skin, it it literally wipes the bullet clean of this grime and oil and, and burn and unburned gunpowder. And it creates just a little black rim, a little halo, again, like a collar. So it's called an abrasion collar. Okay, let's move a little closer. So what if the muzzle is held inside two feet, but more than six or eight inches away from the victim when it's fired? Okay, now you not only have the bullet coming out and the entry wound and the abrasion collar, but what else do you have? Now you're inside the range that which this powder residue, these burned and unburned, uh, gunpowder uh, re residue is now expelled that far and hits the skin and it actually embeds into the skin or at least stipples the the uh, the uh, surface of the skin and and we call that tattooing or stippling and so this would tell the medical examiner that the that the bullet was fired from anywhere from six or eight inches to two feet away from the victim now, common sense dictates that the further away, the more this residue, this gunshot residue, this un burn and unburned powder would travel, the more it would, it would uh, expand, it would spread. So if you're a foot and a half away versus a foot away, the spray of that stippling would be larger. The closer you get, the more compact the stippling is around the wound. So now the medical examiner can not only say, yes, it was within a couple of feet, but outside six or eight inches, oh, I think it was maybe 12 inches away or, or, or 24 inches away, simply by looking at how broad the, the stippling pattern is, uh, like spraying anything else, like a spray bottle of liquid. The further away you are, the more spread there is on it um sometimes you have to find the murder weapon and then test it and see and then you can even get more accurate because you've tested this this weapon firing this type of ammunition and you've checked the spread and then you can compare it and say oh, well it was exactly 10 or 11 inches away okay as opposed to 18 19 inches away you can do that okay so let's move a little closer so what if the gun is held only six inches from where it enters? Well, you have all the stuff I mentioned before, but now you also have the hot gases are impacting the skin, and they can char the skin, and they often turn the exposed flesh, once the skin is ripped and the underlying flesh there, make it very bright red. Uh, so the hot gases basically just cook the area around the gunshot wound. So now, once again, the medical examiner can look at this and say, well, this is a close, close range gunshot wound. You know, couldn't be more than like a half a foot away. Well, that changes the scenario a little bit. 
lastly, what if the gun is pressed against the skin and the bullet is fired? Well, what are these gases and this soot? What's it going to do? There's no area for it to spread out. There's no places for the gases to escape because basically the, the contact of the muzzle against the skin seals off any lateral scatter or back scatter. It's got to go forward. Well, skin is, is uh, and, and flesh and organs and muscles and all this are dense. Though the bullet may just penetrate and go bang, bang, fly right through, the gases and the soot don't, and that pressure is pushed laterally. And this is particularly true, and this makes sense, if it's over bone, such as a gun pressed to someone's head and the trigger and the trigger pulled. The bullet will obviously go through the skull and into the brain and maybe out the other side. But all these gases can't penetrate the skull, and they can't come back and expand the gun barrel, so they can only go laterally through the tissues, and they create a stellate tear. And so that that is that lets you know this was a contact wound. So you go from abrasion collar to an abrasion collar plus stippling, and the scatter of that stippling gives you an estimate for how close between six or eight inches and two feet to a stellate pattern, which means a contact wound. Now, there's diagrams of all this, not only what a gun's fired, but what these wounds look like. They, they came from Forensics for Dummies and How Done It Forensics, and they will be on the, on the website and my blog as part of the show notes. So you can go look at those, and you can see what I'm talking about visually, but I think you get the picture. Okay. So what does all this tell us? What happens here? What's going on? Well, let's say that the suspect says, well, he came into my house and he was threatening me and he, um, you know, he picked up a poker and he was coming at me and I shot him. Okay. That would probably be from more, more than two feet away. And it would not be a close wound or a contact wound. Um, the angle would have to fit. Well, he was there. He was coming through the door. I was standing in the living room, da, 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 da. And they look at the angle of the bullet. Cause when the when the medical examiner does the autopsy and when they analyze the crime scene, they're going to look at the angle at which the bullet entered and exited. Now, that's not always a straight line. Uh, it, 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 the bu bullets do funny things inside the body, and especially if they, if they nip or contact bones. They can be deflected and changed. I've seen uh, in the emergency room back in training, a guy shot in the chest. We couldn't find the bullet. You know, we didn't see an exit wound. Ended up doing full-body x-rays, and the bullet was found down near the bladder because it had hit the spine, turned south, gone through the diaphragm, ripped up a... Uh, uh, the pancreas uh, punched a couple of holes in the bowel and ended up laying in the abdominal cavity down by uh, the bladder. That's not all that strange. So it can do odd things once it, once it strikes. But for the most part, it moves pretty straightforward through the body, especially if the bullet is, is one of those hard time, the full metal jacket or Teflon coated. They don't pretty much care what gets in their way. Um, so the medical examiner has to locate the bullet and track it. So he will look at the angle of the entry wound and he will say, does this make sense? So let's say that the suspect is five foot nine and the victim is six foot three. When he's shot in the head, well, you would expect what? 
He said well, he came in the room. He was threatening me. I was standing here in the middle of the living room, and I fired. You would expect an up, upward angle of the bullet. It would have to enter on an upward angle because the 5'9 guy versus the 6'3 guy, chances are that the bullet's going to travel upward to hit his head. What if it doesn't? What if it travels downward? What does that tell you? Well, it tells you that the spatial relationship between the shooter and the victim are not what the suspect said. You know, he could have said, I was standing on a chair or on the table, you know, whatever. Now, okay, that works. But what if the victim is on their knees or on all fours and the guy shoots him then? Is, is he threatening him? Is that a defensive posture? Is that someone who is shooting in self-defense? Or is it someone who came in and forced someone onto their knees and shot them? Now, obviously, investigation, circumstances, all this stuff will have to determine what actually happened. But the medical examiner can say, well, what I can tell you is that this guy was on his knees. And I can tell you that because of the angle of the bullet, the path it took, the blood spatter out the back, how it went, where it went. I can tell you that this was the, the, the line of travel of the bullet, and it is not two guys standing facing each other. This guy was on his knees, or this guy was on all fours, and that's what happened. And he looks at blood spatter. He looks at all this stuff to make that determination. But the path of the bullet and the entry wound and the distance make a, make a, make a difference. So now let's say someone's trying to uh, fake a homicide and make it look like a suicide. Okay, fine. Most people who are going to commit suicide with a gun put it to their head. They can put it in their mouth. They can put it in their chest. They can do all that. Most people put it to their head. And they put it to the side of the head. Why? Because that's the most comfortable. That's the most comfortable. Make a, as we talk about this, make a, make a gun, you know, with your hand, your finger, index finger and thumb and all that. And, and, and put it, put it up against the side of your head. Simple. Very simple. You'd put it there, pull the trigger. What would you get? You'd get a contact wound. Or you would at least get a close close range wound, which would be the diagram where the stippling is very narrow, hadn't had time to spread. You would not get just an abrasion collar because it would require the muzzle to be a couple of feet or more from there. How do you do that? Try to put your hand out there and back it up two feet. You can't do it. You can't do it. So it means that the that if you see that type of gunshot wound where it's a clean hole with an abrasion collar, but there's no stippling, there's no charring, there's no stellate injury, it means that the muzzle was two feet or more away from the entry site. How does someone do that? They can't. That's the point. And so the medical examiner can from that deduce that this was not a self-inflicted gunshot wound. Also, like I said, he'll look at the angle. What if the bullet enters dead straight right in the middle of the guy's forehead and goes straight through and straight out the back of his skull? Try that. How do you do that? How do you turn your hand around that way to make it perfectly front to back? You can't. It's very awkward. Same way if behind your head. And then again, why would someone do that if they're committing suicide? They wouldn't. And that's the point. So if the, if, the, if the entry wound and the path of the bullet do not fit a comfortable pattern, a likely pattern, and if the distance 
does not match the capabilities of someone trying to commit suicide, then you've got other issues you need to answer. Okay, who was there? Who pulled the trigger? Now, obviously, the gun has to be there in a the suicide. You can't fake a suicide and take the gun away. That's not going to happen. Um, so they use, they use these types of things to determine between suicide and homicide. Very critical stuff. And this will change the entire tone and direction of the investigation. This is not uncommon. This happens quite a bit. People will shoot, uh, you know, a loved one, a spouse, a friend, a business partner, or whatever, and try to stage it to look like a suicide. Well, once you've shot them in the back of the head from five feet away, your fate's pretty much sealed. You're not going to be able to, to, to sell this as a suicide. So you got to come up with another story. Uh, shotguns. You know, shotguns fire out blast, and they, can, they scatter very quickly depending upon the type of, of the, the gauge of the shotgun, the type of ammunition used, and what's called the choke. You know, they go everything from full choke to improved cylinder to no choke at all. And all that means is that how much it narrows the, pa- the, the, the expulsion portal of all the shot that comes out of a shotgun. A shotgun shoots a lot of pellets. And so the tighter the opening at the end of the barrel, the more compact that is. Well, if they have a, if they have someone who's shot with a shotgun and they're again trying to determine the range. Now, obviously all this, this forensic, uh, gunshot wound analysis I talked about doesn't play in, in, in so much in shotguns, but if they find a suspect weapon and they can take that weapon and the type of ammo and fire it from several distances and measure the scatter pattern. And from that, go back to the crime scene information and estimate what the distance was between the muzzle and the victim. Again, all those things about suicide versus homicide versus uh, self-defense and all that come into play. Because now you've determined the distance between the, the, the shotgun muzzle and the victim. And that can change the entire story, just as the gunshot wounds with bullets out of handguns that we talked that we've been talking about. Um, a very famous case is the Kurt Cobain case. Was Kurt Cobain murdered or was it a suicide? And there's been this has been so controversial. You can Google it and look it up. There's a lot of information out there and a lot of disinformation out there. But it's my understanding that basically he was found in the, in an up, upstairs like garage apartment, if you will, at the his place in Seattle. Uh, Courtney Courtney was out of town. She was actually down in L.A. at the time. But he was found laying on his back with a shotgun under his chin. Uh, the gun was turned upside down, and a lot of people made a big deal out of that. And I. I think wrongly so, and he had fired a, a single gunshot up through his chin and brain and killed himself. He also had a lot of heroin on board when they test him for heroin, a lot of heroin. His levels were very high. Okay, here's the first thing. When you put the gun barrel, when you put lay the gun on your chest and put it under your chin, that you're laying on, the, on your back, it would make sense to turn it upside down because then you just put your thumb through the trigger guard and pull the, pull the thing. In fact, turning it the other way actually moves the trigger guard down against the skin and the trigger itself, and that makes it even harder to do. So I think the natural position would be to take the gun like you're going to shoot it, hold it in your hands like that, 
turn it upside down, lay it on your chest, and then just put your thumb in there and pull the trigger. That would be the most comfortable way to do it, if you can talk about comfort in this. But here's the other problem. Shotgun ports, for the most part, where they eject a shell, if you have an automatic, you know, shotguns can be pumps, they can be single shot, they can be a bit, but an automatic shotgun, you pull the trigger, I guess it's really semi-automatic, you pull the trigger, it fires, it ejects the shell, and seats another shell in the firing chamber, so you're ready to fire again. Okay, bird hunters use these all the time, because you often have to shoot at birds two or three times to get them. Um, the ejection port for that spent shell is to the right. So if the gun's upside down and he's laying on his back and got it there and he pulls the trigger, the ejection port's to the right and the shell should be ejected in that direction. Well, actually, in that case, apparently the shell was found to the left of the body. Well, that kind of changes things. The other controversy that came up in this is whether he could actually have operated a shotgun with his heroin levels as high as they were and a lot of toxicological experts will say no there's no way he could have operated the gun he was too hammered you know he was practically in a coma from the from the heroin so no way he could have done this someone else must have done it and just as many others on the other side say yeah but this guy was an addict he was a user he had a very high tolerance for heroin and so consequently at those levels he could do things that you and I and the average person couldn't do with those levels. Actually, we probably wouldn't even be breathing. But users get tolerance to that and they become accustomed to it. You know, alcoholics tend to be able to drink more than people who don't drink very often. Um, so this controversy rages on and uh, there's a lot of good stuff out there. There's also a lot of chatter. So if you go look at it, you know, be careful. So the bottom line is that when a gun is fired, the bullet burned and unburned gunpowder and hot gases come out of the barrel. These each travel different distances and that factor lets you determine the approximate distance of the muzzle from the entry wound. Also, the angle at which it enters and exits is very important, particularly the angle that it enters, because it can change homicide and suicide, and accidental, actually. You know, I was cleaning the gun, it went off. Well, no, you weren't, because this came from the side and it was over here. Uh, oh, let me throw in one other thing, right-handed, left-handed, and gun in the hand. Uh True that people probably shoot themselves more often with their dominant hand, but not always. So that is not absolute written in stone. Right-handers will shoot themselves with their left hand, and left-handers will shoot themselves with the right hand. It happens. Uh, are more likely to use the dominant hand, but that that doesn't really prove anything. Whatever happens, happens. Okay, so. Um, how, how the person handles the gun depends upon how they feel and what they're doing and what position they're in and, and who knows, you know, just this is the way they picked it up. Um, and usually the gun is not in the victim's hand. Once you shoot your, especially if you shoot yourself in the head, once you shoot yourself in the head, everything kind of relaxes, if you will, and the hand falls open and the gun usually falls out and drops. Even if you're sitting in a chair or lying in bed, uh, and particularly if you're standing somewhere, if, if you fire the gun, it, your hand's probably going to relax and release it and the recoil and all that, and it's going to fall to the ground or, or somewhere on the bed, on the lap or something, somewhere in the neighborhood. Um, 
so often when people try to stage murders as as suicides, they will, you know, wipe the gun, put the fingerprints, put it in the the person's hand with their, you know, wrapped just perfectly in their finger, you know, in the thing. Could that happen? Of course it could. But that's not the norm. Usually the gun is not does not is not retained by the hand once it, once all the muscles relax. So I hope this gives you some insight into how you might be able to use gunshot wound analysis in your stories and make everything complicated until, of course, your your clever sleuth comes along and says, well, wait a minute, hold it, this doesn't make sense, I have a question. Why this, why that, why that? Now, if you want to read more about this and to see more about it, both Forensics for Dummies and How Done It Forensics, uh, have, have sections on this with the diagrams that are on the website and other things, and you'll be able to, to investigate this a little further. But I hope you've enjoyed this, and I hope you uh, um, learned something, or I hope at least sparked some ideas for stories. As always, Criminal Mischief is a uh, copyrighted show of Authors on the Air Global Radio Net Network. And so until next time, this has been D.P. Lyle, and I hope you have fun writing.